talk about a program of research that I've been developing in collaboration with Stanley and other colleagues. Um, so I'd like to talk a bit about kind of the theory behind it and the build-up to how I came to design the project. Um, and I'll just say that it's supported by Welcome. Um, so I'll tell you a bit about me and what I do. I'll tell you a bit about the background of, of the research. And then I'll give you some very, very preliminary findings, which I'm still analyzing. So I'm currently funded by a FUSE project. I don't know if any of you have heard of FUSE, um, but it's a Center for Translational Research in Public Health. There's five of them in the UK. Um, and we're funded by various research councils and charities. And the aim of FUSE is to, as it says, um, take evidence from research, translate it into policy and practice. Um, so I'm, there I'm a researcher, so I do a lot of the research, the empirical research, and then work with colleagues who are specialized in um, methods for translational research. And we work very closely with local policy partners and um, practitioners of either public health or healthcare um, to try to get that evidence um, in action. There's more... Um, you can look at on the FUSE website, which is down there. Um, we've just renewed our funding, so um, at the moment we've got six new research programs, if you're interested in any of them, there's the six. I'm based within the Complex Systems Research Program, um, which I'm really excited about because I tend to be a systems thinker, and I think the biocultural anthropology tends to think about humans in, the, in their context and... and um, looking at models and how humans sit within models. Uh, so what, what it aims to do, that research program, is look at public health issues um, which are considered wicked or complex. So that's the, it's not my term, it's the terminology in the, um, the sort of public health research literature, which is essentially... Um, I don't know what that thing is, that blue arrow. Um, Basically, the public health issues that we're dealing with today, so chronic illnesses, um, they're not just about getting infected, it's, it's about how people are related to the environment, so there's genetic factors, there's epigenetic factors, there's um, contextual issues such as your environment, food policy, so they're not easy to solve, we know that, that um, issues like obesity, they're not easy to solve, you can't just tell people to exercise more and eat less, that doesn't work. Um, so that's why I'm really excited to be in this, in this, um, this research strand and work with collaborators, colleagues who look at complex systems methodology to try to get a better understanding of obesity. Uh, does anyone have any questions about views? No? Okay, so then to talk a bit about the background of the research. So the big questions that I have, and I think public health in general has, is what causes obesity? Who's responsible? So that's why I'm particularly interested, is responsibilities for health. And how should obesity be addressed? So doing research in obesity, you tell anybody, you tell the taxi driver what you do for a living, and you get an earful about what causes obesity and what the problem is today in the world. Anyone who researches obesity will probably 
had that experience, you get to hear a lot, which is actually nice because it's free research, it's free ethnographic research. <laughs> um, and what you hear is a hundred different explanations, a thousand different explanations, a lot of which are not evidence-based, which you don't necessarily expect the public to have evidence-based information, which is debatable. Um, but a lot of them are, are value-based, so a lot of them are, are based on individual judgments of individuals' behaviours. So I, I want to look at these issues more closely because I think they lead to much larger problems. So obesity, complex issue. How many of you are familiar with this spaghetti diagram? Good. Maybe half of you. Um, it comes from the Foresight Report, 2007, um, which is quite a quite helpful model um, and also quite unhelpful in some ways. Um, it, it is interactive if you want to look at it. Um, you can look at the, the details underneath um, and what kind of evidence there is to, to support this model. But essentially what it is, is it's framing the, the issue of obesity, so looking at the different factors that can influence obesity. Um, so you have people's biology, um, individual's activity, the activity environment, so things like having lifts everywhere, not staircases, People's individual psychology, so mental health problems or anything else, societal influences, food consumption, food production. So we know all these factors can influence obesity, but the question is which ones affect which individuals um, and how can we kind of use this model to apply um, practical solutions to, to helping to address obesity. Any questions about the model? Or comments about the model? So, addressing obesity. Um, how many of you are familiar with the Marmot Report? Good, a few of you. Um, in the Northeast, we're very keen on looking at health inequalities. Um, that was one of the other research themes in FUSE. Um, I should say FUSE is a, is a network of the five Northeast universities, so that's under the Newcastle... Teesside, Durham, and Northumbria. Um, so we're, we all work together and we look at health inequalities because the northeast of England, some of you may or may not know, is um, one of the most deprived regions in the UK. Uh, so the Marmot Review out in 2011, excellent review, I recommend anyone interested in health inequalities to have a look at that. Um, it's severely evidence-based and it's quite... Um, it's very strong evidence. There are critics, of course, um, that looks at how um, different approaches, including public health interventions, can actually create health inequalities. Um, and linking you know, material deprivation and access to health care with poor health outcomes. So really saying health inequalities, inequalities are bad for health is what, it, what is basically the essence of it. So, at the moment, the public health interventions that are recommended um, in policy documents are behavior change theory-based interventions. So, are you all familiar at all with behavior change theory? Um, so, I mean, you'll all know just being living in this country, you'll know that the public health messages that you get are very much about, as I say, changing your behavior. So. It's down to the individual to eat better food, to exercise more, 
you know, make time to pack lunches and all these things that we're expected to do. Um, but the critique, or my critique, is they don't un address the underlying causes of why people behave the way they do. So you can tell someone to change their behavior, but if you don't understand their life, what's going on in their life, their perceptions of the world, it's up to them whether they take it up or not. And as I said before, these often come with value judgments. So if someone behaves badly, they must be bad people, or they're lazy, or um, you know, they're not trying hard enough, or whatever it is. Um, inevitably, these value judgments fall into that when you're working from that framework. That's my, my perspective. Um, and behavior change interventions have limited success. I apologize for not putting the names or the references. Um, that was an oversight. But if you, you want any of these references, I've got the list here. I can easily give them to you after seminar. Um, and the, a review by uh, Ten Have and colleagues um, looked at the effects of health interventions, obesity interventions, um, on individuals' psychosocial well-being and identified they sort of listed a range of factors that could potentially um, cause negative psychosocial effects, um, such as blame, stigmatization, and discrimination. So it's not black and white addressing obesity. It's very complex. So as anthropologists, we're very good at um, investigating the lived experience. That's often what we aim to do. Um, an alternative theoretical approach to the bio, to the behavior change model, sorry, is the biopsychosocial model of obesity, um, which puts stress as a primary mechanism for why people behave the way they do, um, and why people might behave in obesity-generating ways. And I'll show you some some more examples of that. Um, there are reviews. Uh, literature reviews that find associations between stress and security and obesity, so those are psychological um, reviews or um, uh, endocrinological reviews, um, but less so with the ethnographic perspective. So, um, yes, I've said that, endocrinology. Um, so there's quite clear evidence linking stress with you know, what we might call bad behaviors with inverted commas, I will say, for the record. Um, and this, this leads to the welfare regime hypothesis, which Stanley and um, other colleagues of his um, have published in um, the Proceedings of the, New, of the National Academy, um, which is an excellent book. I recommend it. Um, so in that, they compiled a lot of data, did a lot of analyses, um, and found, I mean, Stan would be able to tell you better, um, but essentially high prevalence rates of obesity were observed in market liberal welfare regimes. So that includes the UK and countries like the US, where there's a free market, meaning there's fewer restrictions on the movement of trade. Um, so there's less regulation on what companies can and cannot do. Um, 
and that's in comparison with coordinated market economies like Sweden and Germany who have um, you know, more restrictions, I suppose you could say. <clears throat> um, I think that it's the higher prevalence rates, but also the pattern of the prevalence rates are also quite unique. Um, so the welfare regime hypothesis predicts that these high rates are due to chronic life stress resulting from competition, uncertainty, and inequality that are associated with market liberal welfare regimes. So there's less um, social support. So yes, we do have a lot of benefits in the UK, but relative um, to other countries, um, not, not as well. So there's more insecurity in people's lives, um, great inequalities in the UK. And the UK is really shamefully bad. Um, and again, there's a promotion of competition, so that's associated with the free, um, free market. So this is just a diagram I put together just to try to visually describe the biopsychosocial model. And I have all the arrows pointing in, but in reality, the arrows will be going in a million directions. But it's just to describe the basic concept of cause and effect. So. On the outside, we have the social environment in which everybody lives within. And if you look at all the issues of insecurity that might occur in an individual's life on the outside, so we have consumer culture, stigma, I've got my little pointer. Um, yeah, job insecurity is a big one right now. Um, social status global crises, thinking about all the uncertain things in the world, um, competition to maintain ideal body standards, all these things, um, can lead to different kinds of psychological states. So anxiety, internalized shame, sleep disturbance, which we know um, is associated with obesity, depression, social isolation, which then, those psychological states, then lead to a change in people's behaviors in response to those social environment and psychological states. Specifically, comfort eating, lower energy levels, which can lead to decreased physical activity, um, overeating, and decreased exercise. But obviously these things can go back and forth, but it's just to explain the general concept of, of how one thing can lead to, to the next. Any questions on the model? <coughs> And I'll say again, this is based on um, the work and the proceedings of the British Academy that Stanley and colleagues have put together. I mean, they can include, this is looking at behaviours, but yes, it can include um, the, the stress response is the most obvious thing. Um, so changes in metabolism, um, you know, depression. Um, and also you know, epigenet epigenetic effects as well, so altering the, the expression of genes, so increasing you know, adiposity, central adiposity, for example. Um, but I'm interested in behaviors, so this, this is looking at specifically behaviors. So it's not meant to be an all singing, all dancing. It's quite specific. Um, and hopefully as I go through the research, it'll, it'll be clearer. Okay, so quick run-through of the policy context, just thinking of time. Um, are any of you familiar with NICE guidance? 
Yeah, so that's the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, so it's really kind of the gold standard of how practitioners should be practicing um, in public health and healthcare. Um, so NICE recommends that um, primary care practitioners provide advice on obesity to patients, um, but what happens in reality is that they often don't. They often don't want to, um, they're not interested, they don't have time. Okay, so my argument is that um, the role of primary care in obesity service is ambiguous. So people are told to go see the doctor if they have an issue, but then when they go to talk to the doctor, they only have 10 minutes, and if they want to talk about their interpersonal lives or their psychosocial issues, that's not going to be done in a general practice setting. Um, so I think that leads to more uncertainty in people's lives. Um, and I think it can help to widen inequalities as well. Okay, so getting into cultural models then, because um, the research that I'm doing uses <coughs> cultural consensus modeling. So without going into much detail, just in the interest of time, on culture theory or um, cultural models in too much detail, but the brief piece of it is that people's health behaviours are guided by their cultural models. So that's the, the context of, what, of which I'm building the research on. Okay, so Alexandra Brewis, this is a quote from her book, um, what is it, Understanding Obesity, obesity Cultural and Biocultural Perspectives. I see you mouthing the title. Excellent book, I recommend it if you haven't read it. Um, so she's describing what a cultural model is, the shared understandings that both interpret human experience but also shape goals that should structure action. So it's not just what people think, but it's also a framework for how people behave. Um, so research by Dresler and colleagues, um, Bill Dresler in Alabama, um, individuals who share the dominant views of a group, who do not share the dominant views of a group, excuse me, experience higher levels of stress. So if you don't fit in with the cultural model that everybody else is, that can create stress. And those individuals also who don't believe that lifestyle change is possible are more likely to overeat. So this has to do with um, a lot of findings and more psychological research which shows that people who don't have a sense of control or a sense of um, confidence or self-actualization, they don't feel that they have control over their lives, they're less likely to be able to make change. Um, and we see that in um, often in deprived groups who don't feel that they have as much control over their lives as often we don't. So cultural understanding of <coughs> understandings of obesity, which is the part of the title of my talk. Um, what I've observed and what others have observed is there's a contradiction in logic. So when people think about health and health issues, they tend to individualize the causes of health outcomes. So like I was saying, oh, that individual, that person, you know, people are lazy. Um, or, you know, it's because she's big boned or whatever it is. It's that individual's issue. Um, but people tend not to consider the social and ecological factors shown in the spaghetti diagram of the Foresight Report, um, which we know play a major role in the reasons why people tend to gain, gain weight and become obese. Um, but, and people know that, 
they hear it all the time, but we as individuals, it's not just other people, it's me as well, everybody. That's what we tend to do because our lived experience is on the day-to-day with individuals. Um, you know, sorry people like me are thinking about complex systems on a daily basis, so I will think about things in that context more, but the average person, I wouldn't expect them to do that. So that's a tendency, and there's a contradiction in that logic. And being an empiricist and someone who's interested in evidence-based practice, um, I think there's work that might be done here. Um, and there's research by um, Poland colleagues at Yale, um, which shows that people who have stigmatizing views of obese people, once they're informed about the causes of obesity, um, they'll shift the blame from the individual onto external factors. So if people are told, you know, um, you know, kind of unreadable nutritional labels, people aren't able to read nutrition labels, that can cause people to eat the wrong kinds of foods. So people think, oh, right, maybe it's not the individual's fault, maybe it's food policy. Um, so, a cultural understanding of obesity can help to improve the efficiency of policy practice and uptake of services, and that's what I'm interested in, in doing that pursuit. So, the research. Um, so, the overall research question, um, what underlying cultural factors are associated with obesity-generating lifestyles? And how can understanding of this issue be applied to improve health um, policy and practice? And the overall aim is to identify commonly held or cultural views about obesity stress and responsibility that can help to inform policy and practice. Um, and in this program of research, um, I've proposed um, four projects. Um, the first of which I have some funding for from the Wellcome Trust to, to pilot. Um, the first one is, is to do a cultural consensus model, which I'll go into, um, which is the empirical part of it, so the, the data collection. Um, and a Delphi study, Delphi is a, a way of building consensus, whereas cultural consensus modeling is a way of identifying consensus, so taking a poll of what people think, and then consensus buildings like, let's get in a room together and hash this out, can we come to an agreement? Um, so that would include um, lay people, primary care practitioners, and policy people, so really figuring out what should be done. Um, doing a theoretical piece, um, and then taking those three studies into a knowledge exchange event. don't know if any of you are familiar with knowledge exchange events. That's a lot of what we do up at FUSE. Um, so as I say, it's translating evidence into practice and policy. So you really, you literally get people around the table, look at the evidence. Researchers are there to you know, explain the evidence if that's necessary. Policy practice people, lay people all give their thoughts on that research and brainstorming ways of developing policy and practice together. So it's called co-production. So some very preliminary findings. So this is from a pilot study. Again, I would say, um, <coughs> is the pilot of the first project. So its aim to generate a statistical cultural model that can estimate group beliefs held by GPs and mothers. So on this pilot, I've taken quite a small or constrained um, sample. So 
GPs from the northeast of England and mothers who are patients at those general practices in the northeast. Um, and I've done that in order to um, increase the homogeneity of the samples. So the people in the samples are likely to be quite similar, likely to think quite similarly. That's the idea. Um, so I want to I find out about the effects that factors associated with the market liberal welfare regime has on chronic life stress. So it's really testing the welfare regime hypothesis. And then whether chronic life stress has an effect on obesogenic behaviors. So it's making that link of that model. If, you know, if I'm at risk of losing my job, is that going to make me feel stressed? And is that stress going to lead me to eat more cookies or whatever it is? Um, do people really... Is that people's experience? That's what I want to know. And the design is... I started with a meta-ethnography, and I reviewed other ethnographic work that's related, and I used those to help design um, a questionnaire, which was given online, and then with the questionnaire data, I'm <coughs> going to conduct a factor analysis, which is a statistical modeling tool, which helps to look at themes within the data, essentially. I'll talk about that. Uh, so previous research, so I'll, I'll um, just touch on this. This is ethnographic work I, I've done um, looking at what people think about providing obesity services in the dentistry setting, um, which sounds maybe crazy, but it's starting to be done in the US, for example. And it fits with what's called a common risk factor approach. So this is the type of policy that the WHO recommends. And that's getting public health messages out in unconventional settings and basically getting people health knowledge anywhere you can. And the UK policy is called making every contact count. Okay. And there could be benefits, there could be you know, drawbacks of doing that. Will people feel inundated with information? Um, and in a dentistry setting, do people think that's appropriate? Will people get offended? But, if that conversation is brought up in, in a strange setting. So I wanted to know. Um, and what I found was that parents um, were afraid of those approaches because it might stigmatize children. Um, I looked specifically at programs targeted children. Um, and there was an uncertainty over the causes of obesity, which led to confusion about its solution in the roles of public health and health care. So people weren't really sure what caused obesity, and then that led to confusion about whether they felt that it was appropriate for obesity services to be delivered in the dentistry setting. So this, um, this informant was really succinctly said what a lot of other people were saying. She says in one breath, I think it's a lot down to laziness, really, why people are obese. And then she paused for a second and said, but people just seem too busy and got, got things to do, don't they? <clears throat> so she starts with the value judgment and says it's the individual's fault. But, but then she realizes that people have busy lives. People have to work long hours. People have to pay bills. People live within their contexts and have stressful lives. So it's these contradictions that really interest me. which led me to do a meta-ethnography, which unfortunately I can't get into too much detail about, but essentially I looked at um, 
primary care practitioners' perspectives on um, issues of obesity and the role of dealing with obesity in primary care. And how did you do it? How did you collect the data? I will say. Um, so I did a literature review in the UK, so I restricted it to studies that were done with UK primary care practitioners and patients. Um, and I think there were seven in the end, uh, no, nine studies in total. Um, and basically what you do in a meta-ethnography is you look at what's called secondary data. So each individual study, the researchers looked at the primary data, which is the interviews, and they come up with the secondary data, which is their interpretation of that data. So I looked at the secondary data, so I did a collection of that, and came up with tertiary data, which was my interpretation of the author's interpretation. Um, and again, being a model type person uh, into you know modeling, I've got a little diagram here. But essentially what this is saying is I looked at what um, individuals or lay people or patients say about what they think individuals' roles and responsibilities are around addressing obesity. And they very much embodied blame. So people said, yes, people need to sort themselves out. Um, and these individuals also said what they thought healthcare practitioners should be doing. They should offer practical advice, be non-judgmental, and provide emotional support. And then you look at what the healthcare practitioner says. They, as well, very much believe in this willpower model that individuals should be changing their lives. And the healthcare practitioners thought that they, they themselves are only responsible for medical problems. So they don't want to deal with people's emotional problems. That's what really came out. So it goes back to that encounter in a general practice. I, you know, I'm struggling with my weight. I've got all these stresses going on. GP doesn't really want to talk about it. So that got me interested um, in looking at this research. Other research I'll just acknowledge. So I looked at contradictions in messages, okay, so public health messages, public discourse. Um, I looked at other ethnographic research. Um, by these people, which looked at, um, uh, so Hamilton looked at the role of branding in people's lives, so pressure on parents to, you know, buy their children the right types of brands, so how consumerism has affects people's um, perceptions of themselves and, and stress in their lives. Um, and then I used 10 statements from Alexandra Bruce and colleagues, um, cultural consensus model study, which looks at body norms in particular, so she really focuses on stigma. Um, and just to say it's a mixed methods design, okay, so I, I used a synthesis of ethnographies. I developed a questionnaire, which is quantitative part, and I asked, is there clustering of views amongst general practitioners and patients? So the blue being clustering, so I'm going to use quantitative methods to identify clustering, to identify the views which are derived from qualitative research. So I just I use this in my research methods class to show a form of mixed methodology. 
So, the methods, I used cultural consensus modeling, which is an anthropological um, method. It can identify shared beliefs and understandings of a group, and it can establish how well an individual agrees with that group, so you can look at, at from both perspectives. Um, so the research has been done on obesity using cultural consensus modeling, um, but it's not yet been done with obesity health services, so that's the, the gap in the literature that I'm trying to address. Um, so for this pilot study, it starts off using exploratory factor analysis, um, which is really a way of exploring the data, looking for themes. Um, so this uses multivariate linear regression modeling um, to test whether correlations observed between variables are explained by their relationships to any independent variables. I'll show a diagram to explain this, um, which come up with latent variables or factors. Okay, so on the, on all the questions I'm asking, is there a clustering? Is there is there a theme that can come out? Um, latent variables represent a high frequency of responses to questionnaire statements, um, which is clustering. And then after I do this exploratory factor analysis in the pilot, I'll do a, a national wide study looking and doing confirmatory factor analysis, so giving, clarifying, so it's like a retest, clarifying what those themes are. So, if a high majority of responses is identified within a group, we'll be able to describe a set of beliefs for that group. So, GPs might all have a very clear understanding and, sh and have good consensus amongst them. Um, if a high majority of responses is identified um, within both groups, so if both groups tend to have a very clear cultural model, we'll be able to compare those beliefs. Are they similar? Are they different? And my prediction is that individuals with, within both groups will hold contradictory beliefs. I think we all hold these contradictory beliefs. Um, but I'm suspecting the GP will tend toward a market liberal welfare regime values and patients toward the biopsychosocial model. So my hypothesis is that um, based on the meta-ethnography I did that um, the GPs will tend to think people need to sort themselves out and patients might have more of a lived experience and understand the different factors involved. It's just a hypothesis. Uh, right, so the way I designed the questionnaire Statements to support aim one, which was stress-inducing factors of market liberal welfare regimes. Okay, so looking at, so I've, I've themed my questions into competition, uncertainty, and inequality. And then aim two is to test the effects of chronic emotional stress on obesogenic behaviors. So does inequality or um, uncertainty lead to stress? That's for aim one. And does stress lead to obesogenic behaviors? That's aim two. So I've structured the questionnaire to reflect my aims. And this is just an example of what the questionnaire looks like. Um, so that just falls within that same. So this would be aim one. So there's too much pressure from society to be thin. Okay. 
um, job insecurity can lead to worry because insecurity leading to stress and then effects of chronic emotional stress on obesogenic behaviors where it can cause people to lose sleep. So stress can lead to certain types of behaviors that are unhealthy. <coughs> and sample prediction, I've made this because I don't actually have the data yet, um, but what I might expect the data to do. So here I have the questionnaire item. So if we have people feel, I don't want to go outside and run because I might get harassed or something. Okay, there's a stigma with going to the gym or something. And then a fear of crime. I don't want to go out walking because there's a lot of crime in my neighborhood. So what the factor analysis will help to do is group these into a cluster. And I might look at those clusters and say, well, maybe those questionnaire items theme around something to do with being indoors. Um, so maybe that's something to do with how people's environments can affect the way they behave. So that might support a biopsychosocial model. Um, whereas if the questionnaire items cluster around something like um, people should exercise to reduce stress um, and obesity is caused because of laziness, that might theme around something to do with self-control and a belief that people need to take control of their lives and make change and do something about it and that would fit with the market liberal model. It's just what I would expect to happen with the data. So the data that I do have, um, I've got, as I say, participants in the northeast of England, which is quite deprived, with very high levels of, of um, BMI rates. So I had um, 28 GPs, mostly females, patients, 29, all of them were females. Um, Average age for GPs, okay, so they're all quite young. We expect the mothers to be young um, because these are mothers of children who are currently children, if that makes sense. So they're mothers of children who are 15 or younger. Um, so deprivation follows what we would expect. GPs are actually in the middle range, so this is based on deciles of deprivation, so 1 to 10 with um, one being the least deprived, 10 being the most deprived, so patients are up at nine, which is quite a high level of deprivation, which makes sense. And then I also asked people's ethnicity based on the Office of National Statistics categories, and patients, GPs, mostly white with some Asians, which is, uh, reflects the Northeast, which is mostly um, white. So was there any dissonance between the groups? I've just looked at the data and looked at the frequencies. Okay, so these are just the raw values. I haven't done any statistical analyses with these. But I've just pulled out the ones that seem quite interesting, quite marked. So as I've structured these, I will tell you, some are in white, some are in green, and they're in, in dyads. So each statement has its contradicting statement. So this one, if you don't get ahead in life, you cannot be a success. And you don't need to prove to others your personal worth. Okay, so these are kind of opposing values. Um, I'll get to the contradictions later. So patients, more patients tended to believe that <coughs> statement. Um, more patients tended to believe that those less fortunate 
should not be given extra support. Um, patients who raise obese children are irresponsible, so more patients tended to agree with that statement, which kind of goes against my prediction. Um, doctors aren't there to solve your problems. I thought this was surprising. Most GPs said no, so that goes against what I found in ethnography. Um, if you don't have a steady income, you can't plan for the future, so this is patients mostly agreed with that statement. GPs were mixed, so that's maybe a lived experience of people who were on lower incomes. Okay, so technology, society changed so fast it's hard to keep up. Again, it's maybe a lived experience with people in more deprived backgrounds. Um, okay, and then just a few others. I'll just skip over. Inequality, there's not that many. It's not quite clear. There's quite mixed re results for the inequality section, which I thought was surprising. Um, parents felt, yeah, it's important for children to fit in and have the same clothes and toys as other children do. Okay, so there's that sense of competition um, with your neighbor. Okay, um, and then I'll just move along. Are there contradictions within each group? <coughs> so looking at GPs as a group, are they contradicting themselves? Is there a contradiction in their logic? Well, looking at this dyad, simple life changes can help you look and feel better. And maintaining an attractive body takes a lot of hard work. So for me, those are quite opposing statements. Okay, same contradictions for both patients and GPs. Too many people rely on the government to look after their health. If you get sick or too old, the state should look after you. So again, there's that kind of in-between, well, which is it? Is it okay if you're not well to go see help, or you can't seek too much help, so you kind of are stuck to find this balance? Um, okay, this one for me is a bit more clear. You should be able to take control of your life and earn a good living. And people face so much, so many barriers to gaining employment. Um, so again, you're within this situation that you can't necessarily control. And then the last one, which looks at um, the effects of stress on behaviors, quite a lot of that kind of contradictory statements. Um, so this one, overeating happens when people don't have self-control. It's difficult to watch what you eat when you feel overwhelmed. So there's a bit of a value judgment there. So if you don't have self-control, you know, you're, you're going to overeat. Um, but it is, but then again, it's, it's difficult to watch what you eat. So what, which one is it? What are we, we going to rest on? Um... To make lifestyle changes, you have to get out of the house and try new things. When you're stressed, you want to stay inside where it's safe. So it's not necessarily that the individual is contradicting themselves, but they're taking in contradictory messages from society and from what their lived experiences are. So I'm not trying to catch people out and try to say, oh, well, you're illogical. I think what this shows to me is that we do get mixed messages about health all the time and it comes out, I think it trickles down
This one's one. Okay, parents are to blame for letting their kids spend too much time at the TV and on computers. After a long day, maybe it's easier to sit the kids in front of the TV or the computer. So, you're to blame, but then you're, you're in, a, in a situation where you're tired, it's the end of the day, kids are screaming, just put the TV on. Okay, so just a quick summary. There's some potential consensus and dissonance. I can't say till I run the models. Um, do mothers take more of a neoliberal perspective? I don't know, that's possibly coming out where there's a bit more of an expectation from the mothers for people to have self-control. Um, contradiction within the groups, again, as I was saying, there's the public health messages, so that has implications for the implementation of public health messages. Um, and so we have high expectations of individual control of behaviors and understanding of determinants, wider determinants. Okay, so that's what I'm saying is that people can understand both, but they still don't, they're not resolved. Um, and then I need to do some factor analysis to get to the bottom of this. Um, and just some limitations. So I don't have data on BMI, um, which would be interesting. Um, and questionnaire, any questionnaire looks at what people think during a study, doesn't necessarily reflect what they actually think or what they actually do. So just to, just to point that out. Um, and maybe I'll just leave it there.